and welcome to the St. Edmunds Podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today got a bit of a treat for you. It's Dan Horner, Professor Dan Horner from Manchester, who's going to be talking to us about this concept around the UK resuscitationist. Now the phrase resuscitationist you well, may have come across at SMAC or possibly from people like Scott Weingart and I've always felt that it's someone who's just got a passion for resuscitation and the science around it. And that doesn't really matter whether you're a doctor, nurse, paramedic, or whether you're an anaesthetist or an emergency physician or a critical care um, clinician. I I don't really mind. I think it's about a mindset. And if you listen to Scott talk about this, I think that's where he comes from. But in the UK, we work in a different system. And I tasked Dan for the St. Edmund's Live conference last year to really have a deep think about this and see if it is a concept which we can sign up to. So I have my views. I'm sure you have yours. But let's give it over to Dan, who's really quite a bright chap, and see what he thinks about this concept of the UK resuscitationist. So Dan, over to you. About the UK resuscitationist, just small about, we don't know whether you're going to say this, but resuscitationist is a word which um, raises a lot of antibodies in people, because it's a word which was made up um, around the SMAC conferences. Um, and there are some people on Twitter who have really strong views on this. Well, the reason why we're talking about it today is because emergency medicine has been an interesting place um, in terms of what we do in emergency medicine, what our scope of practices, who's doing what, when to whom, how do we train, how do we maintain our skills, how do we be good at resuscitation, whatever particular tribe you're from, whether it's a, a professional tribe, nursing medicine, or whether it's a, a um, specialty tribe, anaesthetics, pre-hospital care. In general, St. Edmunds don't play that game. But we thought it'd be useful to talk about because it's it's a live issue. And Dan, and because of his dual experience in both intensive care and emergency medicine and in academia, I know that's more than dual, but <laughs> his, his experience and working in several places that actually do high-level resuscitation work, I think he's an expert, and um, I'm really interested to hear what he has to say. Thank you, and uh, hello, everyone. So... I'll be honest, when we did that mindfulness exercise, I think I might have had a little nap. <laughs> Anyone have a little micro-sleep? Uh, a lot of my trigger words have gone, you know, my mind is emptied, I was trying to do it all, so apologies if I stutter through this, but I'm going to give it my best. Uh, and this is my title, so Simon gave me this, The UK Resuscitation, which is a good title for a talk, isn't it? Dan, we want you to talk about this thing, we don't really know what it is, it might be a job, maybe it's a state of mind, maybe it's more of a role... Who knows what it is? Anyway, get out there, do some educating. Yeah, that was my brief. Uh, and so I started by having a little look to see what's out there about a resuscitationist. What do we think it is? Uh, there's a variety of websites that will talk to this concept. There's a, a conference. I don't know if anyone's been to the resuscitationist conference. There's various definitions across the, the internet space. And, and there's a job out at the moment in East Kent. You're welcome for the free advertising, but he's kind of advertising for a resuscitationist fellow. And when you look at that job description, what is it? It's a bit of critical care, a bit of emergency medicine, a bit of education, a bit of simulation, a bit of pocus. Can someone do all that? Can they maintain excellence in all of that? Can they be brilliant at all of those things together? Is that what we want? Do we want to create a new specialty of resuscitationists that do all of that and excel? I don't know. What do our... Patients what from a resuscitationist, do we think? This has got me thinking about Al Pacino in Heat. Anyone seen Heat? Watched it the other night for revision. That's what I told my wife. Eyes in Darwin. So uh, there's a scene in Heat where uh, Al Pacino takes his stepdaughter into the emergency room later on. I'm sure those of you who've seen it will remember. She's attempted suicide and 
she's in hemorrhagic shock, she's exsanguinating, she's hypothermic. And he takes her into the cubicle, and he lays her down on the trolley in front of the emergency physician, and he says, I need a trauma surgeon, I need a vascular surgeon, I need a respirologist, I need more emergency physicians, I've got to do this, this, this. You know, he wants leadership, he wants expertise in the resource room, he wants clinical skill. Maybe that's what our patients want from a resuscitation, so why isn't he asking for one? If we did this film again tomorrow, would he go into the to that area and ask for a resuscitationist instead of all those different names? I don't know. What would you want from a resuscitationist if you were hit by a car? If you had a, a serious infective illness in your inseptic shock, what would you want from someone? Would you want to be the doctor that you were taken to? Would you want to be taken to the system that you work in? These are interesting concepts for us to think about, aren't they? Because some of this talks to what a resuscitationist probably should be or, or, or could be. What would we want? What do we see as excellence? What would we want for our relatives? What would we want for our loved ones? Uh, and I want to spend the next 10 minutes just talking perhaps about five things that I think I would want. I don't know if we would want, but I think things that I would want from someone calling themselves a resuscitationist or someone working in that kind of acute sector environment. So what's the first thing I want? Well, I want someone who extends the incision. Uh, so this is a surgical analogy, isn't it? I, I'm sure lots of you have anaesthetic experience. We've all done our bits and bobs along the route. Uh, and some of us will have been in theatres where a junior surgeon perhaps gets themselves into trouble and they need help, they need backup. And the first things that the boss always seems to do when they come in, or the cases I've seen, is they slow things down, they carve things down, they extend the incision, give themselves more space, make it easier for themselves. And this is a good maxim for a resuscitationist. You know, you're struggling to get the chest drain in an obese patient. You just need to extend the incision, give yourself more, more space to work. Struggling to get the tracheostomy into a patient on intensive care. Extend the incision, make it bigger, make your life easier. And it's not really just about practical skills and incisions, isn't it? We can extend the incision in, in diagnostics. Now, we all want to be the clinician who strides into the room and confidently declares that this is lupus. Confidently declares this is attention pneumothorax in the community. You know, we all want to be uh, that clinician, but actually, I'm not sure I want that from a resuscitationist. You know, I want insecurity. I want someone who knows what they think the diagnosis is, but is constantly checking themselves, constantly asking, what else could this be? Am I missing something? Am I giving this patient the right care? I want house, not Josh from Casualty. You know, I want, I want someone to wear a cognitive error. I want someone uh, who's clear on confirmation bias. These kind of things to me, what I would want from a resuscitationist. Uh, and we can see some of that emerge within the literature, can't we? So this is a nice table from a, a paper in CHESS this year, looking at our diagnostic accuracy rates in terms of sensitivity for common presenting pathologies in 2,500 patients who attended an ED with shortness of breath. So there is room for improvement here, isn't there? When we take a history, when we do an examination, when we perform ancillary testing like an ECG, a CT scan, a formal echo, we still get it wrong. And actually, when you add POCUS to this, you can improve sensitivities by 10% in heart failure and in pleural effusions and other concepts. So POCUS is probably gets adopted by resuscitationists because we want to extend the incision. We want to be sure we want more diagnostic information. And even when we get the diagnosis right, we can still extend the incision, can't we? We can still look at how our patients are responding to therapy. And are we sure we've got this right? Are things getting better? Now, this is going to become more relevant to all of us over the next six months as we go into winter uh, and we get six, 12, 18 hour trolley waits in our departments because actually you may make the right diagnosis and you may start some therapy but what's happening at six hours is your borderline asthmatic getting better 
is your septic patient who just needed a bit of fluid according to ICU getting better. <laughs> we can do more for these patients, can't we? You know, these are a few of my favourite things. Uh, and an arterial line, as we've already heard today, will give you great B2B blood pressure monitoring. It will give you real-time information about how your patients are responding to fluids. It will give you serial acid-base physiology. It will give you a, a reliable mark of PO2. You know, there's an argument for putting these in everyone who's remotely sick in research, isn't there? You know, we should be all over this. Or a resuscitation should be all over this. Okay, what else do we want from resuscitation? Well, we want someone who's at the sharp end of clinical skill, don't we? We want to deliver our loved one into the hands of someone who has a good set of hands, who can perform procedures reliably, safely, quickly, deftly. But we know that you know a resuscitationist, if we're going to appoint one resuscitation fellow, is not going to be there all the time. We know that it's a huge department with a large turnover. So there are issues here, aren't they? We want to be sharp, but how do we stay sharp? How do we keep sharp? How do we keep on learning? Challenges. And there's lots of other challenges embedded with this concept, isn't there? We have to provide a service. So we need help from other specialties, and we need support from people who are good at things. We want them to help us deliver reliable care 24 hours a day. Uh, and we have to be in departments that provide education. Now, if I was giving my loved one to a resuscitationist, I would assume that education would be part of that. I would want someone who was learning and training to be involved in the care of my loved one, but I would want them supported by an expert who could step in immediately, who could guide that person, who could make sure it was done in a safe manner. And there are challenges for us, because if we're going to provide a service using a whole hospital team and we're going to facilitate education of new resuscitationists, then we're not going to get much opportunity to skill, are we? We're going to lose our sharp edge. And how do we maintain that? Well, we've already heard today about deliberate practice, about seeking out opportunities, and that's an absolutely critical skill for anyone who considers themselves a resuscitationist, as is the pursuit of mastery in the real-time critical procedures, the life-saving procedures. And these things on the right have tremendous fringe benefits. You know, How can we do deliberate <coughs> practice if we're giving away all the intubations, let's say, in resource to our trainees or, or we're, we're asking anesthesia to help facilitate them well we can go up and we can do cold theater lists you know we can get back into theater and we can build up our practical skills there and we can make friends and we can break down silos and we can discuss challenges across our departments and we can actually make reams of improvement we can do simulation multidisciplinary high fidelity in situ simulation which i'm sure everyone in the room is probably a fan of but that's great at bringing people together and discussing best practice and about taking care forwards so as well as someone who's clinically sharp, I want someone who's academically sharp as well. If I'm going to give my relative over to you, then I want you to be at the sharp end of the literature. Uh, and I want you to understand what the current concepts are, what might work, uh, and what new treatments are available. But I want you to understand that in the totality of the evidence. So I don't want you to take one new paper and be using that to justify playing with a new toy. I want you to understand the totality of the literature on anything and then be able to apply it judiciously to my relative as you think is important. And there are levels of evidence, aren't there? And we see a lot of literature, you know, we cover a lot of stuff in St. Evelyn's, but there's also areas where we don't have much literature. And there we need to understand the basic science of what we're doing to resuscitate our patients, don't we? We need to understand the face validity of the concepts, and we need to understand where the evidence is lacking. And if so, how can we justify use? This is propofol. Maybe this is propofol. Maybe this is propofol. <laughs> This is a cliff readism from the original SMAC conference, I think, isn't it? Uh, which is great, I love it. Uh, and, um, 
I suspect this room may veer up a bit towards that end. And that's interesting because I've looked quite hard at this. This comes up all the time. And I haven't really found any solid literature comparing propofol as an induction agent to any other induction agent suggesting that it's inferior. Now, we've all got anecdotes, haven't we, of people who suffer cardiovascular collapse when someone gives them a, an incorrect dose of propofol too high or you unmask pathology that you didn't expect. But we have to understand the science behind that, don't we? There isn't really a literature base saying we should never use propofol. We have to understand the science of why it might be a bad choice so we can articulate that in the rhesus room, so we can convey it to the, the new anaesthetic trainee who's very familiar with this drug, who's very confident with this drug, who wants to use it. And actually, we have to choose our battles. Someone very senior wants to use a reduced dose of this alongside other things. Maybe that is the right choice. You know, we have to have the scientific discussion, don't we? I thought there might be some new literature on this coming out. Has anyone read this paper? Anyone there? Anyone seen this? Induction agents mm -hmm. in trauma, critical illness. Horses. Mm -hmm. Horses from the front, rather almost. Goats. There's more literature on goats than there is on human beings when we're talking about comparative induction agents. And actually, ketamine's not very good for goats. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Just saying. Okay, but you know we have to understand the science of these interventions, don't we? And um, that involves a lot of reading, involves a lot of context, involves a lot of our, our own study time, um, because we have to be more than just the abstract. We don't want to be Doctor Just the Abstract. You know, Doctor Just the Abstract will tell you that thrombolysis is gone for submassive PE. We don't use it. There's no benefit. A big paper in the New England Journal of Medicine showed us that there's no difference in outcomes. Actually, when you drill down in the younger patients, they do have a benefit. Now, you have to balance that against their bleeding risk, and you have to evaluate every case on its merits, don't you? But we have to read the whole paper, and we have to understand the totality of the evidence before we can make clear clinical judgments. <coughs> Dr. Just the Abstract will tell you that decompressive hemicraniectomy and traumatic brain injury saves lives. And it does. At the cost of more people in a vegetative state or with severe disability. So we have to think about that when making the decision to do it at 2am on the intensive care unit. Dr. Just the Abstract will try and draw some strong conclusions about proper, the proper trial, one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one resuscitation versus one-to-one-to-two. And they'll say that these Kaplan-Meier curves speak for themselves, or they'll say, well, the confidence intervals overlap so much that there's no difference between the two things, so shouldn't be using either. And this is tricky, you know, this one's really got me thinking. I'm not sure which strategy is best, but that's important, isn't it? That we own up when we don't know, that we talk about it with the other people who work in our systems, and we move forwards from there. Okay, and then another thing I would want from a resuscitationist is someone who recognises that they're not going to be there all the time. You know, if I'm taking my relative again into a hospital, I just don't want to, to roll the dice and, and see if Scott Weingart's there when I arrive. You know, I want that system to be able to deliver excellent care whatever time I arrive. Those of us working 48-hour weeks, you know, decent job plans, probably in the department, less than 20% of the time that it performs, that it functions. So the vast majority of the time we won't be there. So what we should really be doing is concentrating on that time, isn't it? Shoring up our systems, making sure things are deliverable. And this is about change management, which is a huge part of being a resuscitationist. It's about developing change, about leading change, about creating an infrastructure that supports excellence. Now, I quite like Cotter's eight-step change management, and that's online. I forgot to say at the start, but all of this talk will be published on the centre, and those blogs, all the references will be there. But John Cotter's published a nice model about change, which is very simple about how to drive it, how to lead it, how to develop it. And, you know, that's a good place to start when you're thinking about changing something. But there's more from behavioural economics that we can learn as resuscitationists. Apart from change management, we can look at the nudge. We can look at choice architecture, can't we? We can look at trying to create a system whereby... 
the right choice is the easy choice. It's the intuitive choice. It's the alluring choice. Because that way people will do better things. This is our major hemorrhage protocol, uh, which we rejigged last year. You know, we were really struggling with this. And we had an interesting sit-down with the biomedical technicians where we sat down and we said, you know, it's really cumbersome, the major hemorrhage protocol. You know, you give us one number. We can never remember it at two in the morning. We're on the ward. When we call you, you pick up the phone. You say, do you want type specific? You know, can, can't, you sure you can't wait for fully cross-matched? You know, or what are you going to do? That takes ages. And they said, well, we're just trying to help. You know, all of these are options. Why can't we just, you know, set up the options for you? You can tell us what you want. And I said, when I activate the major hemorrhage protocol, I want something red or yellow, and I want it immediately. <laughs> because I've already made all of those decisions in my mind, as I'm sure you have. You know, when you activate the major hemorrhage protocol, when you push that button, you've decided that they can't wait. And so we can facilitate that just through discussions and choice architecture to make sure when it happens the next night in F2 on call, it will be easier to deliver. Having problems with choice of induction agents, then offer people a pre-filled syringe so that they have to make a cognitive step forwards to get something else out, draw something else up. Same with metaramanol. If that, too much of that is being used in your department, create five mil pre-filled syringes so it's very noticeable when someone's gone through an entire syringe. Want to get a load of Swedish people to walk upstairs instead of using the escalator? Turn it into a piano that plays notes as they walk up. And what 66% more of them walk upstairs. It's just one silly example, but you get the point. And then, of course, the best anything knows when not to do something, don't they? So, you know, we could say the best footballers know when not to shoot, you know, they know when to pass, the best surgeons know when not to operate. The best resuscitationists should know when not to resuscitate, shouldn't they? They should know when ceilings of care are appropriate. And we have to, I think, ask our resuscitationists to be comfortable with the concepts of futility, with the concepts of opportunity cost, you know, what we're not doing when we're doing this thing. And probably the concepts of resource use. You know, none of us are in infinite environments. And if we're going to work in that kind of environment, we have to be comfortable with some of these decisions. Uh, and that's tricky. It's really tricky sometimes. Uh, and we've already heard today the benefits of peer review, picking up a phone to a colleague, bouncing a, a case off someone, trying to get a handle on what's appropriate and what's not. You know, that is invaluable. And I would want a resuscitationist like that, again, looking after me or my family, who you knows when to ask their colleagues. I don't know if this is going to achieve much, actually. What do you think about this intervention that's undoubtedly going to result in a long-term intensive care state? Do you think it's justified? <laughs> I want people thinking about that when my mother gets admitted to hospital, which she will do, you know, if she's in her mid-70s. I want someone who's comfortable with those concepts. So there are just five things. There's loads of things we could talk about in terms of what a resuscitationist should be or what we would want from them. They're just five things. How are we going to link that back to our case? What are we going to do? How could you know, bring us in his stepdaughter tomorrow to any of your units? You know, what's going to happen? Well, anyone in that environment, really, nurse, paramedic, doctor, anyone should be able to control that situation, shouldn't they? To, to use eye contact, to use touch, to use calm, controlling voice, and to tell Alpacino you know, that we're going to look after his relative. Should be able to get help because none of us is a department and none of us want to do this on our own. We should be free to ask for help around the hospital and a good resuscitationist should be able to deliver that. We're going to use CABC, aren't we, as we go through this patient's case and we're going to try and stop any further bleeding with tourniquet use. We're not going to run to the airway ourselves because we've not done one for ages. We're going to have a system in place that allows us to keep sharp, but we're probably going to give the actual passing of the tube to anyone else who'll do it because we want to stay in control and we want to command this situation because that's where our value lies as a resuscitationist. We're going to extend the incision. Are there toxins in this patient system? 
and we need to log roll and have a look at the back where are the stab wounds. We're going to get as much information as we can about what's happened, about how we're going to treat it, about how we're going to drill down on care. And we're going to progress as we would with any case, you know, by getting help, by making that diagnosis, by constantly refining it, by looking at the response to treatment, by second-guessing ourselves all the time. And hopefully that will deliver an excellent dissertation. But when you take all of that in one, it's not an individual, is it? You know, there isn't necessarily an individual role for a cessationist. I think it's probably a system role. And you all work in systems that are resuscitationists. But the question I suppose I would pose to you right at the end of this is, how sure are you of your system? You know, what can you do to make it better? Is that about you? You know, do you need to do, do you need to upskill in something? Do you need to expand your knowledge? Or is that about change? Is there a bit of your system that's clearly lacking? Is there one thing you could do to shore it up so that if you're not there, you're still confident in the care that's delivered? And once we've all done that, then Al Pacino can ask for whoever he wants, kind of. He's going to get great care, and we're all going to be great resuscitationists. That's it. Thank you very much.